If you take out uh, your uh, booklet uh, on page six, gives you a, uh, a profile of our uh, speaker and uh, our time together this weekend. And part of the uh, impetus for uh, the theme this weekend is uh, our desire that you be more discerning. And so Greg Kokel is the founder and president of Stand to Reason, a ministry that uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, receive their newsletter and follow them for many years. Uh, solid Ground uh, newsletter that uh, there are a uh, number of things. Uh, and by the way, before I forget, there is a book table back there with a number of uh, resources. And basically, the ministry helps Christians to think more clearly and to think consistently and to think biblically. And uh, this particular weekend, I hope that you'll find it very helpful in order to help train you to be able to converse and interact in a winsome way with those who don't know the Lord. And also, uh, the latter half of our retreat will be regarding the idea of how to discern the will of God. Uh, Greg has uh, degrees in uh, philosophy and theology, and you can read his bio there. He has a number of articles on his website, and they also provide training training as well, a program in which will help you to be more discerning, how to be a, a good, uh, consistent thinker when it comes to Christian principles, and that's our desire that you be a discerning, well-trained Christian. So I would like to ask him if he would come forward, and let's uh, give him a warm welcome as he does. Greg? Uh -huh. Thank you. <laughs> I was trying to shake your hand, and you were walking away from me. Thank you. I am thrilled to speak to a largely Asian audience. I know there's a little mixture here, but I got to tell you why. I always look forward to it because Asians have a great sense of humor, which means they laugh at my stupid jokes, even when they're not funny, like that one. In fact, you even laughed at Pastor Joe here, and he's definitely not funny, you know. During that game, and I don't know if I missed this or not, but Kelly, when Kelly said this is team number one, everybody laughed. And then she said this is team number two. Did I miss something? But I didn't get that joke. But I once spoke to a large congregation. Um, uh, it was a, a, a thing like this, but there was like five or 600 Chinese people, and a bunch of them didn't speak English. And so some of the sessions were translated. And so I did some of the sessions, and I did it in English. I translated it in Chinese. And the other ones, they were Chinese speakers that would speak, and they translated back in English. And I'd be sitting in the back listening to these events, and and I, the, the, the pastor would speak Chinese, and all the Chinese-speaking people were laughing like crazy. And I could not wait until I heard the translation. <laughs> and then I heard the translation. And I thought, that didn't seem funny at all. I don't want, <laughs> what are they laughing at? You know, so it was, yeah. now, Pastor, pastor Joe told me yesterday, he says, you know, Asian people are really polite, which is right. And so a lot of times they laugh out of being polite. They'll be smiling at you and... And they're smiling on the outside, but inside they're thinking, that was really dumb. You know? <laughs> so now, Pastor Joe picked me up yesterday, and he's been smiling at me <laughs> the whole time we've been together. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out, does Pastor Joe think that I'm funny, or does he just think that I'm dumb? You know, 
He, he, you have a great smile. He does have it. Whatever reason you're smiling, it's... Uh, <laughs> brightens my day. Well, <clears throat> I get a lot of invitations to speak at conferences that um, are large conferences that specialize in apologetics. Now, apologetics um, is the, the area of Christianity where we make a defense for our point of view. So we're defending the existence of God or the authority of the Bible or the person of Christ or those kinds of things. Now, I get invited to these things. They're big events. They got a lot of smart guys, PhDs and stuff like that. I don't have that kind of credentials. Uh, and these guys come in and they give fabulous information about how to answer the kinds of challenges that people are making in our culture today and, uh, and how to, to make a positive case for Christianity. The problem with those kind of conferences is, is that if you're sitting in there for like a, a couple of days and all of these speakers and they're really smart and you're taking lots of notes, pretty soon you start to get overwhelmed with the information, right? And uh, Towards the end of the conference, people are feeling like that guy in the Far Side cartoon, you know, who's in a math class, and there's all the equations on the board, and he raises his hand, and he says, Professor, could I please be excused? My brain is full, you know, just overwhelmed with the information. And that's, and that's a problem, and this is why they ask me to come in, because I'll come in, and I'll give, oftentimes, the, the final session, and I will give the presentation that I'm going to be focusing in on this, this afternoon and this evening. I provide something that's missing in those, those conventions or those conferences, and, and, and what's missing is a bridge. It's a bridge from the content to the conversation. A bridge from the, the, the scholarship to the relationship. How do you take whatever it is that you know as a follower of Christ, whether it's foundational basic things about the gospel or whether it's more um, detailed information about apologetics and defending the faith, how do you take that and kind of get it into a conversation? When you talk with somebody at work, when you, when you, uh, uh, you know, meet somebody in, in your environment. I spent a lot of time in the airplane, so I have conversations on the airplane a lot. So I, I ended up talking about the Lord with the fellow that was sitting next to me on the flight up from Los Angeles yesterday. Now, how did that happen? How was I able to go from, from the, the stuff that I know into a, a, a productive conversation with this man in a way that, that didn't feel weird, you know, and in a way that didn't make the other person uncomfortable and, and in a way that looks more like diplomacy than D-Day, okay? No conflict, no fighting. Well, that's, that's what I want to focus on in our time this morning or this afternoon and this evening. I want to talk about that, that missing element. But before I kind of get into it, I know some of you have been exposed to the... Uh, tactics material before, and uh, there's, I have a book on it in the back, maybe in the next session I'll flash it for you, because I hope you walk out with a copy of that book, and I'll tell you later why it's so important for you to have that. Uh, this is just an introduction, though. But before I get into any of that stuff, I want to say something here at the front end that probably is going to surprise a lot of you, given that apologetics is kind of a subset of evangelism, and evangelism is about winning people to Christ. Now, here's the surprising thing, and I've had people in my field kind of give me some grief about this, but I'm going to stand by it. Here's the surprising thing. I never have it as a goal. Whenever I get into a conversation that I hope 
will lead to spiritual things. I never have it as a goal to lead that person to Christ. In fact, I don't even have it as a goal in conversations to get to the foot of the cross. And the reason that's a little bit surprising is you may take uh, classes in evangelism or read books in evangelism and because you have a desire to help people come to Christ. And uh, the book uh, on evangelism says, uh, well, you know, they'll give you techniques and things like that, but they'll sometimes say things like this. Look, if you only have five minutes, you can't get anything really ornate or elaborate, just give them the simple gospel because that's the most important thing. Now, I agree with it them in that the gospel is the most important thing. It's the, it's, the, it's the means of entry into a restored relationship with God. It's a way to come into the kingdom of God, this entry door, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are three difficulties with the advice that if you just have a few minutes, get to the gospel. Give them the simple gospel. Here's the first difficulty. The gospel and here, 2013, in our country, the gospel is no longer simple. That is, when we take what we know to be basic Christianity and try to communicate it in an even-handed, straightforward way to other people, they don't know what we're talking about. They recognize the words we're saying because they are familiar religious words, and they know they're associated with Christianity. And maybe they've been raised with some of this lingo. But by and large, they are not getting what we're saying. They don't understand the point of it. In fact, what they'll often characterize is they hear what we say, and they'll say, well, that's intolerance. That's narrow-mindedness. That's bigotry. That's their response to the good news of the gospel. I, uh, I have a radio show that I've been doing for 23 years now. And uh, I take three hours a week. Uh, for eight years, it was six hours a week, uh, but three hours on, on Tuesday afternoons is when, and evenings is when we do the live broadcast now, and it's broadcast around the country on Sundays. But I do interviews as part of the show on occasion, and I interviewed a gal named Holly Ordway, who had been an atheist and now became a Christian, wrote a book about her journey to Christ. The book was titled Not God's Type, and it's not very long, but it's a great little story, well-written about how she went from being a hostile atheist to a committed follower of Christ. She has now got a degree in apologetics, and she's teaching at Boston, I'm not, at, uh, at uh, Houston Baptist's University, you know, so she's really be being used to the Lord now. But she had a Ph.D. in literature from Amherst, a Ph.D. In, as an atheist in literature from Amherst, and she did not know there were four Gospels. How is it that you can get a Ph.D. In, 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 in literature in this country and not know that? But that gives you an idea about how, how, how uneducated people are about spiritual things, especially Christian spiritual things. So you have no guarantee that when you go out and start to talk to somebody and you give them these basic ideas, Jesus died for your sins, he rose from the dead, uh, if you believe in him, You'll be forgiven, you go to heaven. If you don't believe, then you'll be punished and you go to hell. I mean, this stuff just doesn't make sense to people at all. So that's the first liability of getting to the simple gospel. In many cases, you're not communicating at all. Okay? Here's the second liability to that advice. The second liability is <clears throat> that there are a lot of people writing bestsellers right now attacking the foundation of what Christians hold to be true. 
the Bible, the person of Jesus, uh, the existence of God. I mean, the, the, the four so-called new atheists, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris. I mean, these guys have written bestsellers that now everybody hasn't read these books. But they, they know about them. They've heard about them. They've listened to these guys on radio. And there's a lot of people writing this stuff. And half of them have British accents, you know. So they're that more, a lot more persuasive than, than they ought to be with their argument. I was in Cambridge uh, six weeks ago, teaching Cambridge in the UK. And I told the, the Brits this. I said, you guys got such an advantage. Because all you got to do is, in a, if, you know, American audience, all you got to do is open your mouth and you sound like you're intelligent. Because you have this great British accent, you know. I asked them if it were worked in reverse? They said, no, it doesn't work in reverse. So I, okay. But anyway, these guys are persuasive, they're lettered, they're educated, they're articulate, and they got an attitude, many of them. And so they, they, they're clever rhetorically, and they persuade a lot of people. And so there's a lot of folks out there who think that the, 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 the discussion's over, Christians have lost. God doesn't exist, science rules the day, and that's the end of it. And so um, that's another obstacle that you have. There are lots of objections or concerns that people have to have dealt with before they can even give the, simp the simple gospel a fair hearing. So that's the second problem with that approach. Here's a third problem with that approach. If I came to you here uh, today and I taught you techniques on how to engage people and I and I, I, I told you, our goal is to get to the gospel, to do evangelism, to win people to Christ. You are thinking in your mind, well, the measure of success now is how many people I went to the Lord. And if you go out and you don't win anybody to the Lord, then you feel a little bit like a failure, for one. But just the idea of trying to get to that place where you're trying to introduce Christ to people and you're trying to get them to pray the prayer or whatever, just that idea is really frightening to you. And so if I said this is the goal and you, you'd be taking notes and you'd be nodding and you'd be smiling and you'd be saying praise the Lord, but then you would do it because it's a, it's a frightening Prospect, And I'm entirely sympathetic to that. I understand that. And consequently, I have had a whole shift in my approach to this enterprise. My approach is no longer as an evangelist. I do evangelism, but I don't think of it as kind of like events of evangelism in which you have a goal to win someone to Christ, and that's kind of the measure of your success. And not everybody puts it that well that way. They'll say, you know, if you're faithful to Christ and give the message and a person doesn't receive Christ, well, that's on their own head. But still, there is this kind of pressure about that. Um, I, have, I have changed my perspective from thinking of events of evangelism that have the goal of winning someone to Christ to a lifestyle of being an ambassador for Christ with the goal of always trying to represent Christ wherever I can in whatever way I can. My key verse for that, and you could just jot this down and check it out later, is 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says, as though God were speaking through us. We beg of you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
Now, in that paragraph there, the word reconciliation occurs like five different times in some form. So here's the task that we have of bringing the world in, back to God. And so we have this message there. But when I think about myself as an ambassador, I am not thinking of closing the deal. I'm not going for the gold in every uh, situation. I'm not trying to get the hash mark on my, on my spiritual belt. Okay, got another decision for Christ. Because I know that that is not a realistic expectation in our culture. To harvest every time out. I don't think of myself as a harvester. I think of myself as a gardener. <laughs> now, you just think of that agrarian metaphor, you know. Harvesting comes at the end of the season, doesn't it? And in order for there to be a harvest, there has always got to be a season of gardening, of planting and watering and weeding and tending before you get to the harvest. By the way, right now it's harvest time in all the communities around here for something wonderful. And what is that? Who said? You said it. You know, we were talking about this. Now, this is going to be so obvious you're going to like go, oh, yeah, of course, when I say the answer, if you don't say it. Blackberries. Oh, of course. We don't have blackberries down in California, so I'm, going to, I'm in the break time. You're going to see me digging around in the bushes, you know. <laughs> and if I come back all purple... You'll know what that's all about, you know, but this is big harvest time. You try to harvest these blackberries a month ago, you know, you need a pliers to pull them off the vine, right? But when they're ripe, they just fall right into your hand or into your mouth, depending on how you're positioned there, you know. When the fruit is ready for harvest, you bump up against it, it falls into the basket. But that takes a while for the fruit to get there. And when there's a good harvest, it's because there's also been gardeners that have tending the fruit. And since it takes longer for the season of growth before the harvest, I suspect that more people in the body of Christ are gardeners than harvesters. I'm a gardener. I'm not a harvester. I don't pray with a lot of people to receive Christ. What I'm doing is something else. I'm going out there and I'm planting seeds, if you will, I'm tending, I'm watering, whatever plant I come upon, as best as I'm able to in that moment. So I have totally changed my perspective about evangelism. And because I've changed my perspective, I do a lot more good for the ultimate cause of the gospel. And this is my response to those people who are professionals in my field who said, no, Greg, you ought to really... Tell your people to always try to win them to Christ. Josh McDowell told me that. I mean, he, he gave me a tongue lashing for about a half hour on this. Because Josh is a harvester, for goodness sake. But I'm going to stick my, by, by my guns because I know that more good will be done for the body of Christ in general if you think of yourself as gardeners. Now, I've changed my particular goal as a gardener, and I'm going to suggest my goal to you that you might adopt it to your, uh, for yourself because you'll see that this new goal dovetails really well in with the game plan that I want to teach you today. And, and the goal is a goal that I express every single time I address a non-Christian audience. And I've spoken in 65 colleges and universities around the country and some other parts of the world. And uh, whenever I have a, a, a broadly non-Christian group, I always start my talks the same way. And here's the way I start. 
I say I'm here today or tonight because my life has been deeply changed by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And 40 years ago now, when I was a student at UCLA, I began to think more carefully about the claims Jesus made on my life. And also the claims that he made about reality, what the world was really like. And after asking a lot of questions and doing a lot of thinking about it, I finally came to the conclusion that Jesus got it right. He saw the world the way it really was. And as a result, I explained to the audience, I began to follow him. Now, it hasn't been always easy in the last 40 years, but it's been real. And I've also tried to help since then other people to follow Christ as well. So there's my initial introduction. Then I tell them my goal. But, I say, I am not here tonight to convert you. And you can almost hear a collective sigh of relief there, right? I said, I'm here, I got a much more modest goal. I just want to put a stone in your shoe. I just want to annoy you in a good way. <laughs> and usually when I say annoy you in a good way, they, they start laughing. Why? Like, I mean, chuckling in a good-natured way. Because they expect the Christian to annoy them. So I, I just admit it up front, all right, I'm going to annoy you, but I'm going to try to do it in a good way. I'm going to try to get you thinking, because I think that Jesus and the way he viewed reality is worth thinking about. And then off I go into my topic, whatever it happens to be, whatever the lecture has to deal with, I move into that, but that's how I've laid it out. So what is my goal? My goal is just to get them thinking. My goal is to try to give them something that will pique their interest or their curiosity, put a stone in their shoe. And uh, th this is what I, I did with that fellow on the airplane. His name is Evan. And uh, I can't remember exactly. I was following my game plan, which I'll, I'll, show you, uh, I'll share with you in just a moment. But um, turns out he's a chemist. He, he asked what I did because I, I was working on some material. He asked what I did. And so I told him, I'm a radio talk show host. I'm a, um, a writer. I'm a, a public speaker. You always make it sound as glamorous as possible. But principally, so then they ask you, well, what is it that you talk about? You know, and that's my real concern. And so I was able to say, we train Christians to think more carefully about their own convictions and have conversations with people that are productive and, and persuasive, but still friendly, you know. So now he knows, I'm the Christian guy. Okay, he's got that in his mind. So what do you do? I say, I just graduated from college. What was your field? Chemistry. Oh, really? So we started talking about chemistry. Now, what's the spiritual thing with chemistry? There's nothing, there, no, no spiritual thing with chemistry. Although I've been doing some thinking over the years about the problem of the origin of life, that's a chemical problem. And so he started talking about the difficulty of scientists in putting together certain type of chemical equations to get these certain configuration. And if you're into chemistry, amino acids have a left-hand and a right-handed form. And uh, in life and you all have, always have left-handed forms of this chemical. And it's like you have to flip the coin heads a thousand times in a row, in a sense. That's the odds to get this chemical. And, and how hard it is for scientists. So I just asked him. I said, I said if, it was, if it's this hard for scientists, with all they know, to get all these chemicals just right, how did it happen in the first place without any help whatsoever? How did nature do that all on its own? No, I said, is that a fair question? He goes, yeah, that's a real good question. And then he said to me, because he knows where I'm going with this. Like, I'm going to intelligent design, right? <laughs> and so I, and then he says to me, well, we're scientists. This is exactly what he said. He says, we're scientists, and we don't take a book that's 1,900 years old that has not been peer-reviewed. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Bible. 
had I mentioned the Bible? Never. Had I mentioned God? No. Had I mentioned the gospel? Not a word. And so now he's jumping, right? And, and, and so, so we don't, and I said, well, I didn't even bring the Bible up. I'm talking about the empirical evidence. That's all I'm talking about. I'm talking about statistical probabilities. So why would you believe chance can accomplish something that is even hard for intelligent scientists to do, to do given their best work? So I didn't get dragged off into that. I want to go back to the evidence. And well, so that's the way the conversation, now there was, he said a couple more things and I realized that now I had done what I could do. <clears throat> he said, well, I'm not a mathematician. I said, did you ever do the math on that? He says, I'm not a mathematician or something, you know. And I said, well, I've seen the math and it's not, it's not a pretty picture. What was that? That was my stone and issue. And then I moved down. Then we started talking about other things, common interests. We had a fabulous conversation about multiple things for two hour and a half on the flight from L.A. here. And when he left, he left with a positive feeling about a thoughtful Christian who offered him something to think about. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Now, what's going to happen to him? I don't know. He's in God's hands. God is the one who is responsible for taking care of that person. I had an opportunity. I, I tried the best I could to take advantage of the opportunity without bruising the fruit, with coming out, without coming across obnoxious and uh, offensive, but just giving him something worth thinking about and then happy to leave him to the Lord and then to move on so that somewhere down the line in God's sovereignty, another ambassador will be brought to that person's life and move that person a little further, if God so wills. That's the way I see my part. And, and as a result, my, I was relaxed. I was comfortable. We were both enjoying each other. Uh, I learned a lot of things about some of the things that he wanted to talk about. I continued to draw him out. But I had a plan that allowed me to take this goal and pursue it in a meaningful way that was also in a friendly and relaxed kind of fashion. So I'm going to make you a promise right now. <clears throat> Uh, between the rest of this session and the session the, later this, this evening, I am going to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you think you know, or how aggressive, or talkative, or intelligent, or educated, or hostile the other person happens to be. It's a game plan that follows Paul's advice in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And jot that down. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you the verse, but I, I, I'm going to encourage you in your personal time later this afternoon, just go back and read these passages yourself. See if they're not so the way I'm representing them to you. Here's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. He says, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. That's good. That's good counsel, isn't it? Be wise when you're engaging other people. Making the most of your time. Making the most of the opportunity is what he says. Seasoning your words with salt, as it were, so that you know how to respond to each person. So what Paul is saying here is that the opportunities that you have, make good use of them. Be wise in the way you do it. And be gracious in your speech so that you are addressing people as individuals so you know how to respond to each person. 
The game plan that I'm going to offer you allows you to do that. It will allow you to treat every person as an individual and kind of follow the flow of the conversation, yet at the same time giving you opportunity, if the Lord wills, to put a stone in their shoe. And then you see what happens. By the way, sometimes these conversations uh, go nowhere. Uh, sometimes they go a long way. And, and sometimes people ask me, since I've said, it's not my goal to lead anybody to Christ. It's not my goal even in that moment to get to the gospel. Sometimes people are saying, well, when do you get to the gospel in your system? <laughs> do you ever get to the gospel? Sure. And here's my answer to that, by the way. Simply put, I get to the gospel whenever I want. And what I mean by that is I have the freedom in my own mind to respond to the circumstance. So if what's needed is me dealing with an issue that's in the way right now, but it's not the gospel, I can speak to that and maybe remove that problem so the next ambassador can get to the gospel with that person. But if it turns out that there aren't barriers or they're being removed as we're talking and I can then get into a clear presentation of the truth, well, I'm going to go there. My point is, is I don't feel artificially forced to get the gospel out just because my system requires it and somebody told me I got to always get the gospel out in every situation. Imagine this, oh, I got to catch the train. Oh, wait, wait, Jesus died for your sins. Believe you go to heaven. Don't believe you go to hell. Okay, have a nice day. <laughs> okay, so you get the idea there. So, in order to employ this enterprise, though, I have a game plan. It's, it's simple to follow. It's tailor-made, essentially, for each person. So let me give you an example of what it looked like in play. I already gave you one from yesterday. But about 10 years ago, I was in northern Wisconsin, and I was... Uh, uh, my, my family has a very modest, humble little cottage on a lake in northern Wisconsin. My grandpa built it in 1960. And so I've been going, I was there as a kid, and, and uh, now I take my own little kids to Wisconsin in the summer, and we go fishing and stuff. By the way, I have two little girls. By little, I mean like eight and five. Eva, the youngest, just started first grade yesterday. Wait, today's Saturday, right? Yeah, yesterday, so he took her in. So. And I know you're looking at me, and he's, that guy looks old. <laughs> I'm 63, so, uh, and I got two young kids, so I need your prayers. First of all, just put me on your list. Um, but they're good kids, and my wife does a great job with them, and they're, you know, you know, they're manageable, I guess, for an old guy like me. And, and then people tell me, yeah, wait until they become teenagers. I say, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll be dead by then. <laughs> Not worried about it, you know. So we go up to Wisconsin, and this particular year, as before I had kids, though, um, I was uh, with a pastor, local pastor, and I went out, and I go fishing. That's what I really like to do there, and I don't get much other opportunity to do that. And I fish for smallmouth bass up in northern Wisconsin, and this particular day I went out, and I caught the largest smallmouth bass of my life, which was four pounds, three ounces. Now, that's a pretty big smallie for that neck of the woods. Now, I know uh, like, like Lake Washington right here in town, they have really big smallmouth there. It's a good smallmouth lake. But I'm proud of my fish, you know, and so I wanted to get... Now, since then, I've gotten eight fish. That's nine. Eight. 
eight fish over five pounds. So I've improved, improved my bra bragging rights, but I was really proud of this fish. And so I got the pastor to take a picture of it and I needed to get it digitized so I could put it up on the screen at his church the next Sunday where I was gonna teach, you know, and I wanted to show him what a fisherman I was, you know, kind of thing. So um, my wife and I, we took the, um, the film down to the local uh, overnight photo thing and it was before my digital days we had film. You guys remember what film was, right? You know, that kind of stuff. So. Um, the lady that was standing at the counter had a large pentagram hanging from her neck. It was a piece of jewelry. Pentagram is a five-pointed star, and it's a, a, a cultic symbol. So I saw it, and I thought, maybe she's making a statement with this. So I asked her, does your, your jewelry have religious significance? And she said, yes, the, the five points stand for earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. Now, I knew a little about this from my own training, but I wanted to know from her, and I asked her, I said, I want to know whether it has religious significance for you personally. Because a lot of people wear crosses, and they don't, you know, they're not Christian, it's just jewelry. And she said, yes, I'm a pagan. Now, my wife is standing next to me. And when she hears the, 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 the woman across the counter say she's a pagan, my wife starts to laugh. Now... <laughs> She caught herself and she apologized. You know, she said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude, but I never heard anybody admit it before. That's what she said. She'd only heard the word pagan when her girlfriends would call their kids in. Get in here, you bunch of pagans, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so the gal went on to explain how um, she, this was an earth religion. And, um, and I realized as she's explaining a little bit that I'm talking to a witch. And so I asked her, are you Wiccan? And she said, yes, I am. And then she said, we respect all life. I thought, oh, well, if you respect all life, that would probably make you pro-life then with regards to the abortion question. Now, that would make sense, right? And actually, my understanding is most witches are pro-life for that reason. But she says to me, she says, no, I'm pro-choice. I said, isn't it unusual for a witch to be pro-choice? And she said, well, yeah, it is a little bit. And then she says, well, I know I could never do that. Now, she's referring to abortion. She said, I know I could never do that. I could never kill a baby. Now, those were her exact words, okay? Now, what's interesting, what I hope you get, by the way, out of our session this afternoon, if nothing else, you get the conviction that you have to listen to what other people say. You have to pay attention. Because they're going to give you information that will help you in your conversation with them. Now, we train at Stand to Reason, the organization I represent, we train people to deal with the abortion question. We have material called Making Abortion Unthinkable, The Art of Pro-Life Persuasion. And we, are, we offer arguments to demonstrate that abortion takes the life of an innocent human being without justification. So you might call it baby killing if you want, but we don't use that terminology because we don't want other people to think we're trying to make our point with flashy, fancy, emotional words. We want to make the case based on reason. So we avoid that kind of baby killing language. Uh, it'll put people on the defensive. But this isn't my term now. Who is the person who's calling abortion baby killing? It's the pro-choicer that's calling abortion baby killing. So now as we continue to talk about the issue of abortion, I make a decision. Am I going to use the word abortion anymore? No, I'm going to use a different word. What word am I going to use? Her phrase, baby killing. She's already given me that. So I said, she said, I know I could never do that. I could never kill a baby. And she says the reason why. She said, I wouldn't want something bad to come back on me. Now, that seems odd to me a little bit when you think about it.
because apparently her view was like a karma thing, what goes around comes around, and she's saying, I'm not going to kill any of those babies. You never know what's going to happen to you when you start killing babies, you know. <laughs> well, I didn't pursue that. I just let it lie. But I did say, well, maybe you wouldn't kill babies, but maybe we should stop other people from killing babies. And she said, well, I think people should have a choice. All right. That's what you'd expect her to say, right? But what is the choice by her own admission that she's talking about here? The choice to do what? To kill babies. People should, and I, that's what I said to her. You mean people should have a choice to kill babies? And she said, well, I think all things should be taken into consideration. I said, okay, what would be a legitimate reason to make it okay to kill a baby? And she immediately says incest. Okay, now I want to pause for just a second. I want you to think about what's happening. Um, what she is doing is she's trotting out all of the pro-choice slogans, right, at this point. But she has already identified abortion as baby killing. And so all of her pro-choice slogans now are slogans that she is using to support baby killing. And it's starting to sound a little bit weird when you put it that way. Okay? And, and, and so I said, well, look it. But, but she's not listening to her own slogans. She's just sloganeering. And this happens all the time on both sides of the aisle, by the way. Christians do it all the time, too. That is, they repeat slogans they don't think about. And she just firing this stuff out, and she's going to get herself into a hole. And so I asked her, I said, well, let me see if I understand your view. Because she said incest is a good reason to kill babies. Uh, justification, I should say, not reason so much, but justification. I said, if I had a two-year-old standing next to me who had been conceived by incest, if I understand you correctly on your view, I should be allowed to kill this child. Is that right? Now, let me ask you, is that a fair application of her view? Is that a consistent? Yeah, Absolutely. That's completely fair. Now, if it wasn't a fair application, she now has the opportunity to correct me. I'm asking her, is this, the, is this right? And, but this got her pa to pause, and she stopped then. And maybe this is when the stone went in the shoe. I don't know. But she paused, and she thought about it for a while. And then, then she said about killing the two-year-old who had been conceived by incest. She said, I'd have mixed feelings about that. <laughs> now she said it as a concession like well you got you got a point there let me oh yeah well, I'll have to think about it you know and I'm thinking I hope so you know I hope you got mixed feelings about this but um, now the line is building behind me at this point <laughs> and I am interfering with her work product which means my opportunity as an ambassador for Christ in that circumstance has just come to an end now, had I been of one persuasion, I might have turned around and said, hey, folks, I haven't got to the gospel yet. Sit down. Listen up. You might learn something, you know. But no, I, I was going with the flow here. And I was ready then to just to back off, do my commerce, and then move on. And this is the value of the... Of, 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 the, of the game plan that I, that I employ, along with the kind of goal that I have for myself, not to get to the foot of the cross necessarily and get, a, get her to sign on the dotted line to close the deal, but rather just to move her forward a little bit, give her something to think about. And one of the advantages is I'm not under pressure to go in an unnatural way further than I ought to. 
I think yesterday, if I pursued this any further with that fellow that I was talking to, I think he would have gotten a little edgy. And when people are edgy, they're defensive. And when they're defensive, they're not in a, persuade, a mood to be persuaded. And this is why I really try hard not to fight with people. Uh, I, I, I have a rule about fighting, basically. Now, I don't always keep this rule, but I'm just going to tell you, here's the rule. So I'm just like anybody else, you know. I'm still working on some of these things. But the rule is this. If I get mad, I lose. All right? If I get mad, I lose. Second part to this rule. If I don't get mad, but they get mad, I lose. Make it simple. If anybody gets mad, I lose. If you're talking to people and anybody gets mad, you lose. That means you're not going to be able to get to the spot you want to in the conversation, so it's best to try to avoid anybody getting mad. I read it this morning in Proverbs. The pressing of the nose produces blood, and the pressing of anger produces strife. A harsh word stirs up anger. Gentle answer turns away wrath. So there are, that's actually the call out this week for my daughters and I, and, and they do this at their school, their Christian school, where the instructor will say one part and then the kids have to respond with the other. And this is how they learn these notions. And so I called my daughters this morning before he came in here, we, un, unpacking in my room, and I said, uh, a harsh word stirs up anger, and then they responded, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Now, why do I say that, offer that? Well, I'm training my children, and that's an easy way to train them. If you have little kids, kids memorize just like that. It's very simple. Uh, and I want that embedded in their minds, but I also want them to be practicing that. And I practice that more consistently than I have in the past, but I'm still working on being really consistent in my engagements with other people. This is good wisdom. I don't want them to get on the defensive. I mean, when that gal said she was a witch, you know, I didn't do the... I didn't go, and a witch, she's a witch, you know, and do the, <laughs> do the Monty Python routine. I just said, look, there's no problem. I, 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 it wasn't a, we just moved forward. I didn't ruffle my feathers. Now, um, I want you to notice though, something about that conversation. Uh, in that conversation, I asked nine different questions. I used questions to open up the conversation. I asked her about her jewelry. I used questions to gather information about her point of view. I used questions in some ways to kind of uh, exploit what I thought was a flaw in her view, to get her thinking. And my notes at this point say, when I offer that line uh, using the questions, it says, and she was doing all the work. Well, actually, because I wasn't doing any work, I was relaxed. I was following my game plan, and it was really easy. But she wasn't doing any work either, I realize now, because she was relaxed too. And this is the value of this approach. There are no lines drawn in the sand. You don't have people defending turf. Uh, it's amicable. It's friendly. It's easygoing. And when the, the discussion dies a natural death, you let it go. And then trust God with the results. It's, a, it's so much easier to engage people about spiritual things in this way than ever before. And I consistently, consistently have people who have the book Tactics. And see, I'm not a good salesman because I can't show it to you like right there. and It's over in the back, but I'll get it and I'll hold it up. Who have said to me, this book has changed my life. And those are their words, not mine. And changed the life in the sense that it gave them an entirely new approach 
to engaging people about Christ. And it's made things so much easier that they're talking about their own convictions more and more and more and more effectively than ever before. That's the value of a tactical approach here. Now, at Stand to Reason, we have lots of tactics. They have crazy names like suicide and taking the roof off and just the facts, ma'am, and steamroller. And these are all maneuvers in conversation because the goal of the tactical approach, the game plan that I'll, I'll outline for you shortly, is to stay in the driver's seat of the conversation. You want to be the one who's kind of running the show. And I don't mean in a manipulative way. I mean you're managing, not manipulating. You're, you're, you're not... Uh, you're, you're controlling it appropriately. You're, you're directing the conversation the way you want it to go, the way you think would be most effective for communicating the gospel. And um, all of those tactics help in guiding the conversation. But there's one tactic that I use more than any other tactic. It is, it is the foundation of the game plan. In fact, this tactic is the game plan proper, and the other tactics serve this uh, tactical game plan. Uh, it's the easiest tactic that I know of to stop a challenger in their tracks, to turn the tables, to put you in the driver's seat of the conversation, and to get them thinking. And the tactic has a name, and the name of the tactic is Columbo. <laughs> As in the infamous Lieutenant Columbo of TV fame. And here's the, my... my Jacket. Now, some of you young folk, maybe, do you know who Lieutenant Colombo is? Never heard of him. <laughs> you are culturally deprived. I just want you to know that. But I, I, look, this summer I was in France, I was in Romania, and I was in two different places in the UK. And there were always people there that knew who Colombo was. So I'm going to introduce the Colombo to you. This is a TV guy from 30 years ago, American TV. He, by the way, is the number one. TV icon of all time. More recognizable than even Lucy, who is number two, all right? So, Lieutenant Columbo's detective series, Solving Murder, he shows up at the crime scene wearing his old rumpled trench coat. Looks like he slept in it. You know, I got mine at uh, Salvation Army. Whenever you uh, go to buy something in the Salvation Army, you always want to check the pockets, you know, because you never know what you're going to... Wait a minute. <laughs> all right! <laughs> Lieutenant Columbo always had a cigar, right? He shows up, and, you know, this is just, don't worry, this is just a plastic one. It's not, it's not. I, I hate those real cigars. I just hate them. And any time I find a real cigar, I always destroy it by fire. <laughs> he also has a pad of paper. Can't use the pad of paper, though. Why can't he use the pad of paper? Tell me. Because he doesn't have a pen or pencil, you know? He's, he's a... He's got to bum one off the audience, you know, and so he's walking around, you know, scratching his head like this, mumbling to himself, looking in the corners, and this guy doesn't look like he can think his way out of a wet paper bag, you know. He's stupid, but he's stupid like a fox, right? Because at some point, he's got a plan, and at some point, he'll just pause, and he'll put his hand to his furrowed brow like he's in painful thought, and he'll say something like this, I don't know. There, there's something about this thing that bothers me. That, do you mind if I ask you a question? You know how he does that, right? Okay. And he asks a question, and, uh, oh, you're very intelligent. Thank you. Uh, one more thing. 
You know? And then he one more tings him to death, right? Question after question after question, and pretty soon people get upset, and he goes, I'm sorry, it's because I'm asking all these questions, but I can't help it. It's a habit. And this is a habit you ought to get into. The key to the Colombo tactic, and therefore to our game plan, is that the Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way with carefully selected questions that advance the conversation. Well, let me say that again. The key to the Colombo tactic is that the Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way with carefully selected questions that advance the conversation. Questions are your most effective means of moving forward in a conversation. Why? Well, one, questions are a way of drawing the other person out and getting to know the other person. So when you meet somebody and they start asking you questions, are you troubled by that? No, you, you're, you're glad to respond and talk about yourself, right? It's polite. Uh, uh, interested is interesting. And so you're drawing somebody out and showing a genuine interest in them, and, and they're responding. Okay, so that's good. So that's, it's polite. Um, secondly, it's going to give you valuable information, though, about the person and their thinking and where they're coming from and that kind of thing. And the most important element of questions is that when you ask questions, you are in the driver's seat of the conversation. Now, I mentioned I've been a talk show host for 20-some years, and uh, when I do interviews, I ask questions of the person I'm interviewing. Why do I ask questions? It's not just to get information, but it's to drive that interview in a certain direction. Now, for me as an interviewer, I want the person who wrote a good book to be able to tell their story. And it's amazing how many authors can't do that well. <laughs> they can do it well in print if they've got a lot of time to work it out, but you get them on the air and they're all over the place. And so it's my job to guide the conversation by asking the questions that allow them to tell their story in an orderly fashion so that people will get the most out of it. How do I guide that? I'm not doing most of the talking. There they are. I'm guiding it with my questions. When you use questions, you're in charge. You're in the driver's seat. That's the huge value. And you're going to get information that's valuable. So there are three uses of Columbo that I want to talk about this afternoon and this evening. Three uses. So there are three elements to your game plan. There are three steps, if you will, to your game plan. And each has to do with a different way questions are used. So let me start with the first one, and this is your first step of your game plan. So I, I, I'm mentioning the game plan because I kind of want you to get it in your mind that there's a simple way to move forward. It's within your reach. I want to fulfill my promise that I made to you earlier. Okay, the first use of Columbo, the first use of questions, is to gather information. To gather information. Columbo shows up in the crime scene. <clears throat> And all they got is a body there, you know. That's all he knows is somebody's dead. He can't solve the crime unless he gets lots more information. So he's asking a lot of questions just to get data. When I sat, next down, uh, sat down next to Evan yesterday, I'm gathering data. And what was the first thing that I said to him? I'm not sure if he started or I did. Maybe we were talking about are you going or coming, you know. You get on an airplane, you're headed home or you're leaving home. 
So that's a very standard kind of thing. No, I'm heading out. Oh, so am I. Well, you're going to he's going to visit his girlfriend, you know. And are you an accountant? Is what he asked me because I had a list of uh, donors at Stand to Reason. I was looking at the list and thanking God for the individual people that support our organization. No, I run a 501c3. And oh, really? What do you do? And then I answer that question. So now he knows where I'm at. And uh, then I said, how about you? He said, I just graduated from college. Really? What's your field? Chemistry. No kidding. Chemistry is kind of interesting. And then I started asking him some questions about chemistry. And then he starts talking about these two different kinds of left-handed and right-handed form because we're talking about commercial applications of chemistry. And, uh, and he's, he's trying to describe th this. And I said, you mean a racemic mixture? There's a term for this. <laughs> and he looked at me like, yeah, racemic. You know, like, where'd you come up with that, you know? Well, because I'd studied some of this regarding the origin of life issues, so I understood. But see, that kind of made some points with him. And then he went on talking about it, and we're really buddy-buddy now. And then I started getting into this other thing. Now, how did I get there? I'm just gathering information. Do I know he's going to talk about left-handed and right-handed amino acids? No. But he did. And I tossed out my fancy two-bit word, racemic, and he's delighted. And so on we go. You know, this is the way these things go. Oftentimes, you don't know what's going to happen until you start venturing out. You're using your questions, you're in a safe spot. Because when you ask a question of somebody else, whose job is it to speak next? It's their job to speak next, right? So you don't have to talk next. You just let, you, you just let it roll and they talk and you're gathering information in the process. So, so I'm, 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 I'm paying attention. And I'll tell you about another, five years ago, a guy sitting next to me, his name was John on the airplane. It was in Florida, we're flying. And and uh, turns out John, he saw me reading my Bible because I was t we were taking off, and uh, I don't always read my Bible on the airplane, but I do sometimes, and uh, I'm not using it as a prop. You know, some type people. Where's my Bible? <laughs> Want to ask me about it? You know, one of those kind of things. I've actually never had anybody ask me about my Bible when I was reading it, so I'm not sure that's a really good technique, but I just read it because I want to, and I'm not embarrassed to do that, and I just do it. But he saw me reading it, and then as I'm talking uh, to him, he, later on, he, as we're talking, he's, he's a young professional. He's like 32 years old. He's recently married. Nobody in his professional group are Christians. Nobody. In fact, he used to be a Christian, but he's not anymore. That's what he told me. And, and, and Actually, he used to be a preacher's kid, but he's no longer a preacher's kid. And I'm thinking, what, did your dad die? Or how did that happen? And no, he says, no, my dad's still alive. But he's no longer a preacher, really. And he's no longer a Christian. Oh. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there's any baggage here with this guy? He. Can you imagine if I would have started out the conversation just jumping in and telling him about Jesus? What would he have thought? Been there, done that, and it hurt. But because I did not do that, I held back, and I just paid attention to him as an individual. So you know how to respond to each person, Colossians 4. I'm learning things, and I'm gathering information, and I'm getting a picture in my mind of this. It's almost as if I can see a spiritual topography appearing before me. And I can see that in that topography there are minefields, but now I see them and I can navigate around them. And at one point of the conversation, he said to me, you know, people like you, now, what's he talking about, people like me? The Bible reader, the guy who reads his Bible on the airplane, people like you, you know, that kind of thing. 
People like you would be really mad at a guy like me right about now, given what I've just said, because he kind of unburdened about some things. But you're not angry. He said, I really appreciate that. That's exactly what he said. And why, why should I be angry? I'm not offended because he's mad at Christians. You know, he, I didn't do anything bad to him. It's not a personal attack. I'm not taking it personal. I'm just listening. And he appreciated that. And it, it gave some open space to talk a little bit. And so here he's talking to a Christian guy. And when he's had a lot of bad experiences as a Christian, here's a guy who's not reacting. He's not yelling at him, not telling him he's going to hell. I mean, I think he is going to hell apart from Christ. But the timing wasn't right for that kind of message. In fact, he'd already heard that anyway. What I wanted to make sure is that he left that plane with this fragrant aroma in his nostrils from another Christian. And actually, towards the end of the conversation, he gave me his email address. Is that trust? Yeah. Now, why did he do that? Well, he had mentioned some things that he read from some of these new atheist types about how you can't trust the Bible. It's probably Bart Ehrman uh, and misquoting Jesus. You can't trust the New Testament documents. I said, well, I've written a couple of articles about that. Do you mind if I email them to you? He said, no. He gave me his email address. When I got to my destination, I sent him right out, both articles. He shot me back a response in email, and he said, thanks a lot, and I never heard from him again. That is, I didn't chase him. I gave him what I was able to give, in this case, something substantive. And, of course, the, the, the articles have our website kind of attached to them, so he can always follow through if he wants. But I left him to the Lord. I didn't chase him. I didn't beat up on him. I gave him something to think about. I put a stone in his shoe, and that was it for me. How did I get that far? I just asked some questions. I just gathered information and I listened. And you will be amazed at how far you can get just with the first step of your game plan, that is using questions to gather information. Now, let me give you a model question that will help you out here. A model question. The model question for the first use of Colombo is what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Now, there are a lot of variations to that. I just want you to get the concept in your mind so that when you're there with a non-Christian, you could just begin to draw them out. Ask them about their own point of view. Ask them about what they believe, if it's appropriate for that stage in the conversation. If not, ask them about themselves. Get the conversation rolling and then pay attention. See what the Lord will do. Not every conversation is a divine appointment. Guy was sitting next to me reading a book on transcendentalism in an airplane. Oh, transcendentalism, that's like a religious view, you know, and, and uh, great, you know, and I know all these transcendental types. They, this kind of somewhat Eastern religion, there are different aspects of it, different types of it. This was an Eastern religion thing. And they always quote Jesus. I know they, and they always quote him out of context. They don't understand Jesus whatsoever, but they quote him. So I asked him, I said, hey, how's the book? Oh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I said, really? Do they ever cite Jesus in there? Oh, yeah, I do. Uh, have you ever re read Jesus yourself? What do you mean? I said, well, have you ever read Jesus? What, you mean like the Bible? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, I'm, I, at this point, I'm, it's pretty clear to me that this conversation is not going anywhere, you know. A lot, there have been times, though, when I've asked that question. Have you ever read Jesus? No, I, well, no, I just have some things I know he said, like the kingdom of God is within you. And then I might give him a Gospel of John. I said, here you go. This is written by a guy who lived with Jesus, 
for three and a half years, knows him really well, and told a story from Jesus' perspective. Why don't you just read it and, and let Jesus speak for himself? Pretty straightforward. I didn't call it a Bible. I didn't call it the Gospel of John. It's just a biography written by a guy who knew Jesus. There you go. But don't just cherry pick and jump around. Just let the story unfold. So that, that's, a, that's a stone in their shoe, basically. Uh, if you ask this question, do we go to 2.15 or to 2.30? 2.30. Oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> I thought that was about to turn into a pumpkin. Okay, good, perfect. We're a little flexible, too. Huh? We're flexible, too. So if we need more time. Oh, okay. you're flexible. <laughs> Uh-oh. It's not like the radio. You know, it's not like radio. Okay, yeah, it's inflexible. See, that's music to a speaker's ears. And it's coming from a pastor, you know. I bet you he's really flexible on Sunday, too, huh? Like, oh, man. I feel led by the Spirit today, brothers. Hang on there. I got to. You know the time when that, that's really awkward, though, when you're a guest speaker and it's the worship leader who feels led by the Spirit, you know? And they're going on and on and on. And, on. and then you can't say, you're not led by the Spirit. You're just getting into it, you know? Can you. Watch the clock. You can't say anything, you know. So I've always thought maybe, <clears throat> I wonder what would happen if, since I always come after the worship leader, right? So they get the edge up on me there. And they can, what if I just said, hold on, worship leader, hold on. I'm feeling led by the Spirit to start early. <laughs> I've never done that, but uh, <clears throat> anyway. <clears throat> so so um, the first use of Columbo then is to gather information and you gather information by asking broadly a question, what do you mean by that? The whole idea is you're drawing somebody out. And um, people say, some people say, well, there's no God. Well, now what? Well, how about asking, what do you mean by God? What is the God that you're rejecting? Do you mean you don't believe in some organized religion? Maybe that's what they mean. I don't know. Maybe that you, don't mean, you mean you don't believe in... A personal God, but you believe in some kind of spiritual force, so maybe you're not religious, but you're spiritual. You've heard that one before, probably. Um, and if somebody says, I'm, religi I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, what question am I going to ask them next? What do you mean by that? <laughs> I'm not even sure they know what they mean by that, to be honest with you. Really, because a lot of times when I ask people what do they mean by that, I get what I'm calling... Uh, and now. I grew up in the 50s and 60s. That's when I was a kid and in college. So, you know, I'm, I got all these, like, ancient references. So if you hear me say far out or groovy or something, just know. <laughs> but um, all the music I listened to, if they didn't, if they, if, they, uh, if they performed after 72, I don't even know who they are. You know, just, so I'm completely out of touch. But I have plenty of good stuff to draw from, from the 60s, right? Okay. So... Um, when somebody, when I ask sometimes people the question, what do you mean by that? I will often get what I call the Simon and Garfunkel response. And Simon and Garfunkel are 60s, early 70s duo who wrote beautiful music, but they had a song called The Sounds of Silence. <laughs> and that's what I get when somebody's talking away and I say, well, what do you mean by that? And then they go... Because it's amazing how many times you will talk to people who are talking confidently about something, and when you ask for a question of clarification, you get silence. Because they haven't thought through their own convictions enough to put it in other words or to explain it more clearly. This is very true of Christians, by the way. 
But uh, I'm just setting you up here, or, or I should say warning you in advance that when you talk to people and ask, what do you mean by that? Don't be surprised if you get silence in response. Let them work on it a little bit. Sometimes you're doing them a favor because there are a lot of objections or challenges against Christianity that seem to get a purchase simply because they're vague. And then the Christian doesn't know how to respond to it. I had a college kid ask me once, a, a Christian, he said, I got challenged the other day. Somebody said, well, everything's relative. How do I, how do I refute that argument? And I said, well, it's not an argument. It's just a statement. You know, argument's more than just saying it's so. I said, but, but you should never even try to engage a statement like that without first asking some questions. Because in the statement, everything's relative. What word or words might be ambiguous? How about relative? How about everything? Because look at if, if everything means everything, then the statement everything's relative is part of everything, isn't it? That would make the statement itself what? Relative, relative too. To see maybe there's some problem there. So uh, when somebody makes a statement like that, I never let it go without a question for clarification. What do you mean by relative? And when you ask that kind of question, it's amazing how many people will not know what to say. And that forces them to think about what they actually do mean, and now you're giving them, uh, you're benefiting them, because they're, oh, well, see, what, I, what do I mean by that? I mean, uh, you know, like relative. Well, you already said that. I'm gonna say, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, by the way, you can ask this question, what do you mean by that, all day long until the cows come home, and there is no pressure on you whatsoever. Think of yourself just as a student in the conversation. You're just gathering information, that's all. I'm sitting next to Evan. Now, I learned his name. You know, hi, Greg, Evan. And I said, and I remembered it. So then I used it. Why do I do that? Because it's friendly. It takes the other person seriously. That's, that's the way it feels to them. It's, it's, it's congenial. It's, it's, a, it's a nice atmosphere for having a discussion. And so... Um, that's just a little thing that you can do that can make things simpler for you. Um, sometimes people offer challenges like, well, you shouldn't force your views on me. Now, I might react to that and say, well, of course, I have the truth or something like that. But how about just a question? How about a question like, how exactly am I forcing my views on you right now? I, I, that's an information question, right? What do you mean by that? What am I doing that you're interpreting as forcing? Now, I know what they're responding to. And they'll tell me, you think you're right. You think you're right and other people are wrong. Okay, let me ask you a question. Do you think when I talk about stuff like this, do you think that I think I'm right? And the other guy who disagrees with me is wrong? This is not a trick question. Come on, you're looking at me like, I'm not even gonna go there, man. <laughs> No, I, of course I think I'm right. Listen, if I didn't think that my beliefs were true, I would not believe what I believe. I would believe something else and think that were true instead, right? But I'm not the only person in the conversation who thinks he's right. Who else thinks he's right in the conversation? The other guy. So, you know, when he said, well, you think you're right, you know, I said, well, of course, I, yeah, I do. I, maybe I'm mistaken. We can talk about that. But what, let me ask you a question. Do you think you're right? Now, what's he going to say? 
Nope, I'm wrong about everything I've... Now, sometimes people will say, uh, well, uh, uh, my views are right for me. Heard that. And of course, my response at that point is, well, if you think your views are just right for you, then why are you talking to me right now? You know, it sounds to me like you're trying to correct me in some way, and you want me to believe your tolerant way, you know, and not my intolerant way. Of course he thinks he's right. And then I have a final question for him. Why is it when I think that I'm right, I'm intolerant? And when you think you're right, you're just right. What am I missing here? Do you see the problem there? He's doing the very thing he's charging me with doing. And essentially, he's just calling me a name. He's, you're, you're intolerant. Now, when somebody calls you a name like that, whether they call you a, a intolerant or narrow-minded or arrogant or new word now in the last couple of years, starts with a B. Bigot. Oh, bigot. Okay, well, fine. Um, I can live with that. But I just want you, to, I want you guys to see that when somebody uses that terminology with you, that they've changed the subject. You had been talking about something substantive like Jesus or some ethical issue or whatever. You're talking about the issue. And you get to a point where the person ceases talking about the issue and begins to attack you. Arrogant, narrow-minded, bigoted. That has nothing to do with the issue. It has to do with you. It's just what is called an ad hominem. It's an attack on the individual. It's not related to the issue. And that's what I want them to see. I don't want them to, to, to start. I don't, my feelings are hurt when they attack me. When they attack me, they think they're doing something intelligent when they're doing something dumb. They're changing the subject instead of dealing with the issue. What if somebody says you're intolerant to me regarding some issue? And I said, and you're ugly. <laughs> and your mom dresses you funny. You know what? Now, I wouldn't say that because I don't think that's a noble way of talking about issues. But how is it different? He attacks my character. I attack his looks. Neither of us are talking about the issue anymore, right? This happens all the time, constantly, everywhere in this country. Everywhere. Are you guys just passed in the last election uh, same-sex marriage, right? And pot, right? Okay. So I, I imagine that you, some of you engaged in what you thought were going to be principled discussions of the issue. And how far did you get, especially on the same-sex marriage, before somebody pointed the finger and called you a name? Intolerant, bigoted, whatever. How does my character flaws make this, this legislation good policy? How does it, even if I am arrogant and narrow-minded and intolerant, how is... How does that somehow convert your political point of view into something good? It has nothing to do with it, and people change the topic all the time. Here's a good thing you might remember. There's a little phrase, ridicule is not an argument. Ridicule is not an argument. Character attacks is not an argument. Making people laugh at me is not an argument. You can make fun of me all day long. It's not an argument. What about the issue? Anyway, that's the first step of the game plan. Simple, easy, no pressure on you, gathering information. Now, there are some limits to this question. Gentlemen, if your wife calls you an idiot, don't ask, what do you mean by that? <laughs> she may, uh, you know, like, embellish it and clarify. But this question helps you to know what the person thinks. And this is really 
valuable information if you're to go any further in a productive way with the individual. Now, now we got our first step of our three-part game plan in place. And I'm going to hold it there for a minute. I want to tell you something about the organization I represent, and then we're going to break and move to the next activity. There are some cards that are going to be passed out uh, if they are going. Somebody's got, yeah. And uh, I'll explain to you while they're doing it what they are. Um, now's a good time to do that. Doris has them. Um, I represent an organization called Stand to Reason. I mentioned to you earlier that my change in thinking about evangelism um, resulted in me thinking of myself as not an evangelist, but an ambassador. At Stand to Reason, we are, our goal is to build a certain type of person. It isn't just to disseminate information. It isn't just to give arguments against false religion and give arguments in favor of true religion. Rather, it's to build a certain type of person, and we call that person an ambassador, and an ambassador has qualities in three areas, knowledge, wisdom, and character. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole characterization of that, but what I want you to see is that we are here for you to help build you in a more well-rounded Christian, in a time in our history and our culture where more well-rounded, thoughtful Christians are absolutely desperately needed. And we've been doing this for 20 years. We just had our 20-year anniversary last May. And we have been effective at building long-distance relationships with people, people who have benefited from the things we offer because we've got a long arm to reach out and give you guys things. And there's three areas where we can do that. The first is our website. Our website, find it at str.org. Stand to reason, str.org, str.org. We have... a over a thousand pages of information just in written information on everything you can imagine that will help you to walk with Christ and defend your faith uh, we have uh, my radio shows are there you can podcast the radio show you can uh, we have video blogs as well as regular blogs that we have posted there so you can see three to five minute vignettes of me answering a question that a challenge that's offered we do a, I do all our speaking staff do a, a video blog every week so we've got lots of stuff there that you can go and see, str.org. So mark that. Secondly, we would like to send you free training material every single month. And uh, the training material is, includes our bi-monthly newsletter called Solid Ground. That's what's being offered. Here's my pledge to you. You will never find in our newsletter pictures of our staff at bake sales. <laughs> That's not what our newsletter is about. Uh, our newsletter is to give you a hard-hitting article that has to do with something significant in following Christ and addressing a challenge in our culture, all right? This one I have is called Two Miracles. It's the miracle of the cross and the miracle of the resurrection. Uh, I gave this a, a talk at the Saddleback Church uh, two years ago and uh, then put it into an article here. But uh, in order for you to receive our newsletter, we have to know where you live, and that's what this card is for. The card has a blue part and a white part. If you fold it in the middle, you can tear the blue part out, and that's a thumbnail sketch of our game plan. So you can keep this. It will remind you of the game plan that I'm teaching you right now, the Colombo tactic. The white one is for me. If you take a moment and you uh, tell me where you live, or at least tell me your email address if you're a student, uh, we will send you our Solid Ground newsletter. And if we send an email, you're going to get the HTML version uh, which means all the hyperlinks to all my sources are going to be there, and you can jump around the Internet and follow my line of thinking and where my resources are from. 
Uh, but we have to know where you live. So if you take a moment, just fill this out. If you're a member of a family, like husband and wife, we just need one. If you're students, you might want to have your own copy. Because not only will you get solid ground on every other month, but on alternating months, um, you will get a one-page ministry letter, or mentoring letter is what we call it, from me. Just one page. And it gives you a particular tip on how you can be more effective as an ambassador for Christ. But we still we need to know where to send it. So if you could fill that out, that'd be great. The third thing that will help you is the materials that we have. We have a small table in the back that is a small characterization of the materials Standard Reason offers. We have a full store with all of those and a whole bunch more stuff that you can get on the internet. Um, books and ambassadors guides and CDs and DVDs and the like. Um, when you fill out the card and you go to a break, drift over to the table. Doris is helping out there. And uh, you can give the card to me or to her. Uh, and then if you see something you like, you can take that with you. I really strongly encourage you to, um, I'll tell you more about the tactics book and some other stuff later, but go to our website and sign up for our podcast because you're going to get three hours a week of our radio podcast. And I think it's different than any other show. It's interactive. People are calling in. I get a significant number of non-believers calling in. I use my tactical game plan all the time. And after you learn the particulars of the game plan, you will listen into the radio show and you're going to say, oh my gosh, he's doing it. He's using that thing. It's just like he said, it's working. Oh wow, listen to that. You know, that kind of stuff. So the best way to learn these techniques is to kind of partner with me and listen over my shoulder. And the best way to do that is by listening uh, to the radio show. It's only three hours a week, so it's, it's easy to do. You know, I don't know if Seattle's got a lot of traffic. Three hours, that's just like to my office and back. That's three hours for me in Los Angeles. To my office, an hour and a half, back another hour and a half. So I don't listen to my own podcast. Once enough was a... Once was enough for me, but you know, the point is, is you can find some time in your week to hear that. And I, I think it will really help build you as a follower of Christ. Okay, so we got the first step of our game plan. I'll be back this evening for the next two steps, and we'll go from there. All right, thank you.